0: Welcome to Southside. Thank you so much for joining our online service. If you've been following us for the last couple of weeks, we've been going through a series called Stories, Legacies of Faith. And so this week we're going to continue that series and and I'm going to be uh, kind of walking us through a particular uh, account in the life of David. David is a figure in scripture that we we have so much information about. We get to see the highs and lows. We even get to see the introduction to David back in 1 Samuel, uh, I believe it's chapter 16. And in the very next chapter, we see him fighting Goliath. And the legend of David continues to grow from there. And we see these moments where he's running from Saul. We see where he's finally given the um, the, the, the throne of Israel. And we, we see God bless him in all these particular ways. And and then we get to experience the lows with David. And we're going we're to look at a particular account today that is one of those lowest points in the life of David. And, and I've chosen it, and even though it's a rather difficult one, I, it, it's difficult because it includes some difficult principles and truths that I believe as Christians we need to, we need to wrestle with. We need to always be reminded of But herein lies the beautiful thing that we see in the life of David. David was was far from being a perfect man, even though God shows favor on him. And the the Bible writers, the writers within the Bible, they they look back favorably and they, they hold David in such high esteem. He's even regarded as being a man after God's own heart. But David was far from perfect. And the beautiful thing that I think we can, as we enter this account... It's the beautiful principle that, that God uses broken things. He uses sinful people even though we're, we're sinful. And he uses us to his glory and ultimately for our good. The account from David's life that we'll be digging into today are the events that follow David's affair with with Bathsheba. And you're probably thinking, Corey, why are are we going to focus on a a down part of a man's life? Let's talk about the good things. Let's talk about the mountaintop moments of David's life. Well, here's the reason I chose this passage. One, I, I don't see it really covered in churches today because maybe it deals with difficult topics of God's Righteous judgment of our sin, or, or maybe that it deals with God's sovereignty and His acts of justice and grace, and how those two characteristics of God that that they must go together, even though our tendency is to separate them. And two, uh, there are very few times where we where we learn and grow on the mountain. I've had the privilege of going to Colorado several times and, and hiking and climbing some 13, 14,000-foot mountains, and there's only a portion of the hike before we summit and get on top of the mountain where we actually spend in the tree line. There comes a point where we get above tree line, where there is no sustainable growth allowed above a certain level of oxygen, where they, where they can exist, where vegetation and trees can thrive. The growth comes in the lower moments, the lower elevations as you ascend to the top. But it's rather in the valleys of life where we're forced to turn our eyes toward God. It's in those valleys where we must in humility bow before the God who holds our life in his hands. And even though this is one of the lowest points of David's life, We'll see David rise out of humiliation and on the other side in worshipful adoration of his God. So we're going to be spending a, our time, the majority of our time anyway, in 2 Samuel chapter 12. So if you have a, have a copy of God's word as you're watching, I encourage you to flip through and read with us. Uh, the words will be up on the screen. The verses will, will, will click through on the screen. but. If you have a copy of God's word, I I encourage you to flip along with us. We're going to be looking at the first 23 verses of chapter 12. And all the context that that we, we really need to know is the final words of chapter 11. And as I said, chapter 11 deals with the affair of David and Bathsheba. But the closing words of chapter 11 are this. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. Without going back and reading all of, verse, all of chapter 11, um, where, it, where we read about the account of David and Bathsheba, because you're probably just as familiar with it as, as I am, but in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we see David, the king, the one who God appointed uh, before it was really his turn to rule, God anointed him all the way back in second, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16 when Samuel came and anointed the first or the, the second king of Israel while the first one still lived and still sat on the throne. David is the, the king and in 2 Samuel chapter 11 we see that king abuse his power. We see that person abuse who is supposed to be the chief reflector of the goodness and graciousness of God, we see him abuse his power and position in order to satisfy a sinful desire. And this is a guy who's characterized as being a person after God's own heart. And David had a sinful desire and he used his influence and his resources to make sure that that sinful desire was met and when the consequences of that sin began to arise, he again used his position and power to make those consequences go away. He brought in other people into his sin and all along the way he left a path of death and destruction. Scripture speaks about this even in the New Testament. Just this idea, just this concept, before we've even gotten into the verses of chapter 12, the New Testament speaks about this particular idea. And in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, it says, no one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, for God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. And again, the last words of Second Samuel chapter 11, it says, "And however the Lord considered what David had done to be evil." And we don't know exactly how much time has, has passed, and from, from the events that happen in chapter 11 to the events that, that kind of intro chapter 12, but we're, we're told at the end of chapter 11, that, that Uriah has been killed. Um, Bathsheba has come into the palace of David. They've, they've been married, and she bears him a son. Some have connected portions of Psalm 32 to the lapsed time in David's life. Because you think, this is a man after God's own heart. Shouldn't he have had some type of conviction before the sin that he committed, but it continued to like a domino effect, the the, the sin, the first sin, the adultery that David committed with Bathsheba, the attempts to try to cover it up, to to put it away, to make sure that it didn't fall at his feet. When those attempts attempts failed, we see plan B initiated and we see that the, the plan for David to kill Uriah when all of those consequences begin to fall, where, where, where was conviction? Where was there conviction in David's life? So some have connected chapter 32 of Psalm. This is the beauty of Scripture, interpreting Scripture with Scripture. Uh, the beauty of having multiple uh, Psalms, um, poems, prayers written by David himself. Um, two verses from Psalm chapter 32. It says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up, and by the heat, as by the heat of summer. So potentially some of the sentiments that that David may have written in his diary during this particular period of of his life. But even after all this evil that David had done, he remained silent. All this by the person. In scripture, described as being a man after God's own heart. And I think this teaches us that regardless of your status, regardless of your title, regardless of your net worth, regardless of your influence, and even regardless of how your closeness, your walk with Jesus is, no one is immune to temptation and sin. And that we must remember that all. Sin will be brought to light eventually. So let's get into 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. This is what we see. I'm going to read from my Bible. You can follow along on the screen. Verse 1 says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and one poor, the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had brought up. And he had brought it up and grew it up with him and with his children. It, um, it used to eat of his morsel and drink from the cup and lie in his arms and like a daughter. It was like a daughter to him. And now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take, to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who would, who would come to him, but he, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who would come to him. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity we see Nathan's parable as he he brings this to him, and we see that this is God's attempt to speak through the prophet Nathan to uncover David's sin. And this wasn't out of the ordinary for the king. It was as some of the kingly duties, it was his responsibility to kind of preside over the royal court and listen to disputes, listen to these types of things. So David was receiving Nathan as as just an ordinary day to preside over a ruling that would require his judgment. And based on God's law, David rendered a righteous judgment. Note some of the similarities within the parable itself. The story that Nathan tells to David mentions two men, one rich, one poor. David particularly being the rich man, maybe Uriah being the poor man, and we see the rich man coming when it when it suited him and taking a prized possession from the poor man and using it to his disposal. (laughs) And then we see David's self-righteous anger in verses five and six. Notice, David responded justly according to God's law in this particular case, but isn't David's response rich? Is David really going to be so angry that this particular man took a lamb and killed it? I mean, after all, it was just the life of a lamb, it wasn't the life of a human being that we see David dispose of in chapter 11. And yet David declares, if you look back at the verse, the man who has done this deserves to die, and to not only die according to the law, if you go back to Exodus chapter 22, you see that that there would be payment. If a man steals an ox, he would be repaid a certain amount. If he steals a lamb, he would be repaid fourfold for stealing that lamb. And essentially what, what David had done in a nutshell, David had saw another man's wife, took her, discovered that she was pregnant, tried to manipulate the woman's husband in order to make it look like it was his, or like it was the, the husband's. And then when the plan different didn't work, He chalked up the murder of Uriah to basically being, you know, people die in war. And while David had indicted himself, because the penalty for murder and adultery, according to the law, if you go back to Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19, all of those verses say that that the penalty for what David had done would actually be death. And while David had indicted himself by declaring this particular judgment on this rich man, he seemingly was oblivious to his own sin. And isn't that just like us? Don't we so easily see the sin in others? Pronounce our judgment upon them while we ourselves are guilty of the same thing in our lives? So we see God through the prophet Nathan Nathan uncovering David's sin. So what's, what's happening here? David essentially pronounced the judgment on the man in Nathan's story, essentially indicting himself of the crimes he committed. So what happens next? 2 Samuel 12, verses 7 through 9 read this way. Nathan said to David, You... Are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel I anointed you king over Israel. I I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have given you have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites We see that not only is David's sin uncovered we see that through through Nathan we see David's sin called out Nathan says you are the man David you are the rich man in the story. Then based on the blessings of God, notice in verses seven and eight, how Nathan speaking on behalf of God, he's speaking the words of God. That's why he says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And then he goes into talking about all the provisions and blessings that God had given to David. David wanted more than what God had given God said, I gave you everything. And he said, if that had been too little, I would have given you that again. I would have given you as much more. And how many times have we done this to God? How often do we enjoy the benefits of God's blessing and provision and yet then walk away and essentially live as though it were too little, as though it were not enough? But notice David's chief sin. Before he actually got into what he had committed, what he had done, the actual acts that he had done, notice what what Nathan says. He says, You despised the word of the Lord. Psalm 119, which is the longest psalm that we have, and it's like 176 verses or so, and there are over 100 references to the word of God. And just, just a couple of verses here. It says, how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? With, the whole, with my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much As in all riches, I will meditate on your precepts and I'll fix my my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. That's why Nathan says, why have you despised the word? David, you knew better. You knew what God's word said about the things that you did. So why did you move forward and do them? Our chief sin is despising the word of God. Because all sin is against God. And then he names the murder of Uriah. You took Uriah's wife as your own. And you even used the enemy's sword to do your dirty work, David. And just as in the judgment David was ready to render on the rich man in the story. David was due judgment for his sin. And so in 2 Samuel 12, verses 10 through 12 and verse 14, so we'll read verses 10 through 12 and then skip down to verse 14. It says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. This is Nathan again, the word of God coming to David. The sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did in secret, or you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. In verse 14, it says, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. We see David's sin uncovered. We see David's sin called out. And just like yours and mine, David's sins have consequences. Notice what Nathan says. He says, the sword will never pass from your house. If I encourage you to go and read the chapters that follow 2 Samuel chapter 12, and you'll see how this fleshes itself out in the final days of David's reign. Three of David's sons, Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah, all die by the sword. The statement, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. There will be turmoil and inter-fighting inside your family, David. For you did it in secret, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. The result of this sin that you've committed, David, one of the consequences of that. Will be put on display before all of Israel because you did in secret, but sin does not remain in secret. And if you read the kind of the, the following chapters and in the interaction between Absalom and David, you'll see where this these kind of prophetic consequences come true in David's life. And in verse fourteen, because by the deed that by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And if I'm honest, I, I I had to pause here. I even put a little pause point outside of this in my notes because this is something that I wrestle with, and something that I think we should wrestle with. Because we look at God's actions, and we we trust that God is good. We believe that God is good, and we know that God is righteous and loving. And so we wrestle with the truths that we that are revealed to us in God's Word, and. And ultimately, we, we have to accept that, that God is sovereign in and over all things and that the cost of sin is devastatingly high. So when, when David is presented with his consequences, when he is presented and called out in his sin, what is David's? Response. And verse 13 says, I have sinned against the Lord. There was honest and humble confession, not only before Nathan, but before David's God. David obviously knew that he had sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, but David ultimately knew that his sin was was before God. And regardless of what we do, sin is always, regardless of what we do and who we do it to, our sin is always against God. Sin is always against God. David confessed his sin which is a reminder to us that we should always, because we are sinful just like David, because we continue to struggle with sin and temptation, temptation and sin, we need to be in a constant state of repentance and confession before our great God. But before there can be true repentance, there must be honest and humble confession before God. And in that, in that same Verse, the end of it that we did not read. I'll go back. So after David confesses, notice where he says, and Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. We see God's We see God's grace ultimately on display. Even in this very difficult situation, this very difficult circumstance, both David and both David, notice what Nathan said. He says, God has put away your sin. You shall not die. Both David and Nathan knew that the punishment and penalty for sin was death. That's why they, throughout the Old Testament, they'll see the sacrificial system in place and how the high priest would go and make atonement for the sins of the people. We're told in in the book of Romans, that all of sin falls short of the glory of God. And that in Romans 6, we see that the penalty for sin, the wages of sin is death. So that has not changed. Still, the wages of sin is death. Those who sin deserve to die. And you think, well, well why, why, why did Nathan, the second part of that statement, you shall not die. What happened there? And this is where we see the grace that that is even presented to us. We see the grace that that God extended to David. But I don't think God overlooked David's sin. I I don't think that at all because our God is just. Sin must be punished. I think God didn't overlook David's sin. I think he looked past David's sin to Jesus on the cross. Where David's sin would be eternally paid for but just because God said our sins would be forgiven on this earth he never said that there wouldn't be very real consequences for our sin forgiveness does not relieve us of responsibility for the consequences of our sinful acts but this is what we want right (laughs) we not only want God to forgive us of our sin we want him to kind of get us off the hook for the consequences of it, to get us kind of steer clear out of of the fallout of our sin. And we have the audacity to get mad at God when we have to bear the weight of the consequences of our actions. We say we want God to be loving and just, but only as long as I don't have to experience the justice in my own life. Which results in us only wanting God, only wanting a God who who demonstrates love toward us, but a God who is not just, is not loving. Now this is something that we must wrestle with. God's characteristics are intertwined and when we try to separate them or eliminate the ones that we don't like, we create a God of our own making. And this is nothing less than idolatry. It was God's loving grace that spared David's life, but it was God's loving justice that disciplined David for his sin. Yeah. Over and over in Scripture, we see this illustration of a father and a son. A loving father doesn't let his son get away with everything and go unpunished. No, he says... God says, I discipline those whom I love. And he demonstrates that here with David. But what would God's discipline drive David to do? We see that in 2 Samuel 12, verses 15 through 19. It says, then Nathan went back to his house. After sharing this with David, he goes back to his home and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all day and night on the ground, and the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him back up, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. And on the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, behold, while the, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him but he did not listen to us. How can we say to him now that the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. And in the actual Hebrew, it's like he might do something evil. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David stood, or he understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servant, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. We see that David mourned over sin. And this this type of mourning that we see, this type of mourning and brokenness that we see, it was not because of the judgments that that God had placed upon David's life. No, this was mourning and brokenness because David was aware that his sin had grieved God. And we see that David was also crying out on behalf. Verse 16 says, David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And I want us to look at a, at a prayer in Psalm 51, and this one is directly attributed. In your Bibles, it's probably um, um, it's probably even mentioned there. It's in my, in my Bible, in my translation, the translation that I'm reading in the ESV, it says, created me a clean heart. And it says to the choir master, the Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So this is... This is essentially David writing in his diary, writing out what he's crying. I'm gonna read a couple of verses here. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me of my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and the sin did, in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And skip down to verse, verse 15. It says, "O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. Do we pray like this? How often do we go to God when the consequences of our sin fall on us and plead our innocence? When we experience something like David is here, do we express grief because we got caught and now are in trouble, or are we upset and grieve and mourn because we know that our sin has broken God's heart? But notice that David's grief finally comes to an end. Verses 20 through 23 tell us this. And David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. And then went to his own house. And when he and when he was asked, he they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is what is this thing that you have you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but When the child has died, you rose and ate food. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept, for I said, who who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David uh, David did not stay in his mourning. He did mourn over his sin. And when the judgment had executed after he pled for the life of the child, when he was mourning over his sin, he, when the child had died, he arose from the ground, which he had been laying for several days. We notice that David. Notice what David did, even though God didn't do what he asked him to. He washed, he worshipped and then he went away different. What is our response to God when he doesn't give us the answer we want? David's actions puzzled his servants. But what's our response? Do we wash, worship, and then live according to God's word moving forward, or do we sit, stew, and continue in sin because we're mad at God. David was no longer thinking about the temporary, he was thinking about the eternal. We may not see it at first glance or, or through a casual reading of, of 2 Samuel chapter 12, but there is a beautiful gospel presentation on display, even in the lowest point of David's life. You think, Corey, how? How is a gospel demonstration or, or presentation on display in this? <laughs> well, we, like David, are sinners. And while you may be thinking sins, the sins David committed are far from anything that I have ever done, but God does not place levels of severity on sin like we do. We must realize that all sin, any sin, a sin is egregious in the presence of a holy God. And because we are sinners like David, like he understood in the text that he deserved to die because of his sin, we deserve death. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. And that Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. David had fallen short because he had sinned. We fall short because we have sinned. And because there is sin, there is a debt that must be paid and the payment is death. But this is the beauty of the gospel. God looking upon his creation Sees the separation that our sin has caused, and he laid down his own life to bridge that gap. And just like the grace he showed David by sparing his life, by looking past David, not over his sin, because his sin would be punished eventually. He looked past David to Christ on the cross, where David's sin would be eternally punished. God pres- provides us with the same grace and the same mercy, knowing that just like David, sin separates us from God. But just like David modeled in this passage, we must confess our sins and believe that he has graciously absorbed the payment for that sin. And scripture says all who confess With their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. That that hope of eternity that David even believed in in that that final verse that we read. He said, I can't go to him and he can't come back. I can't bring him back, but I will go to him. And I believe David is, is hopeful in more than just joining him in the earth and dying. I believe David's hope was that they would be rejoined together again in eternity because of the faith that he had in God. And what will your response be to God? We we must admit that we are sinners and believing that God sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. He didn't stay dead. He raised victorious over death, proving that not only did God accept that sacrifice on our behalf, but because that we believe we can have that same life in his name. Do you believe that this morning? There's a prayer that, that's going to come up on the screen, and, and again, these words have no power, but this is a way that we can confess. This is a way to posture our hearts in that honest humility, crying out to God that, God, I need a Savior because I am a sinner, and because, God, you are loving and just. God, I know that you, not, you must not only punished sin but you've provided a loving and gracious way for us to be together again and if this is you my prayer David's example is that you would humbly confess Jesus as Lord today and don't continue to sit in your sin live according to the word of God He maps it out in his word. And because he created us, he knows the best way for us to live. And he maps it out in his word. Follow the Lord. Be faithful to him today.